0: My name is Sadia, I'm Umer. and I'm Karma,
1: and you're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. Our regular listeners probably noticed that we didn't publish anything last week, and that was because we're in the COVID-19 era, and last week I was trying to interview someone for the podcast, but it didn't work out because of technical difficulties. And in the process of trying to make that work out, I realized maybe it's best to just do this on a every two week basis. So from now on, I think what we'll do from next month on is we'll publish something on the first of the month and on the 15th of the month. And we'll make it so that the segments are a bit longer. They're closer to an hour as opposed to, you know, being 30 to 45 minutes as they are now. But anyway, that's not what we're talking about today. Today, we're talking about
2: the recent protests demanding justice for the police killing of George Floyd. So as you probably have already heard, George Floyd was murdered by a police officer on May 25th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. His death has sparked a wave of protests, demonstrations, rioting and looting across the U.S. And there have been lots of solidarity protests across many other countries as well.
1: Yeah, there have been at least 2,000 demonstrations and protests uh, around the world in connection with this. So it's quite widespread. And so far, uh, and I think these are outdated numbers at this point, but there have been ten to 11,000 people who have been arrested in the U.S. Uh, who have been protesting, demonstrating, rioting, or looting, any or all of those things. Uh, and, of course, one of the calls that has become been popularized is to defund the police. So we'll chat about that, we'll chat about policing, maybe do some comparative stuff uh, looking at the U.S. as well as Canada. But uh, to start off with, I should I say that I have still not watched the video?
0: Neither have I. I have watched it. Ah. Yeah. I felt like I had to I had to watch it because I was you know, you get a little cynical sometimes. <laughs> and sometimes it's good, like especially because I was hearing from a lot of people in Minneapolis that it wasn't just the kind of usual suspects that were out in the beginning, especially, like the the same like, you know, leftists or people who would typically go to demonstrations, it was a more widespread thing. Uh which obviously, you know, makes sense. I think the watching it just makes you realise how horrific that was and like the fact that it was just being filmed and and just the, the cop didn't give a single fuck you know like that it, it really is outrageous and uh, it makes sense that it kind of sparked the outrage it did and that it was so widespread
1: mm-hmm. no yeah i i can certainly imagine i i've read descriptions of it i've seen snippets of the video and images from it so i can definitely imagine that it, it it's horrific and that's exactly why i haven't gotten myself to to watch it because I'm yeah. kind of a weak-hearted person, I guess. So, I don't know.
0: <laughs> but do you think no, that's fair.
2: what the main reason or explanatory factor is for why the protests have been as widespread and and large as they have this time around?
0: Well, the kind of lockdown and the unemployment aspects definitely, I think, play a role. Like people have been locked up and also like economically deprived because of the lockdowns. So you have a lot of people that are unemployed and then also frustrated on top of that and just cooped up. And I think that like, obviously kind of like fuels the flames a little bit, but I guess just like seeing again, like the kind of widespread, not just like in terms of how many protests there were or how many demonstrations we've seen, but kind of the, the larger segments of society than I think we're used to in a lot of kind of um, demonstrations and stuff being, having been a part of it this time around. Yeah, I think it's it's compounded, but I think the, the kind of the horrific act itself is definitely a part of it, at least.
1: It's hundreds of thousands of people, right, taking part and yeah. really broad segments of society. Uh, and I, I guess one of the things that you notice right away is that it's actually quite multicultural or multiracial. And the other thing you notice is that the police are going fucking insane, Mm -hmm. which is not a good thing to be doing.
2: (laughs) In response to protests about how brutal they are. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like it's almost as if it's, you know, out of, like, deliberate intention and, like, further malice and stubbornness that they've just brought out so much more violence and vengeance. And a lot of people have been hurt um, there are some descriptions of like rubber bullets and such and of course the tear gas and the pepper spraying and there've been journalists who've been blinded in the eyes people like suffered concussions and broken bones and had trauma and such and I was thinking that in the context of the U.S. I mean it's bad enough like when the police do it anywhere but in contrast to Canada in context of the U.S. where people don't well, many people don't have health insurance. And especially right now, when they you know, whatever little insurance they might have had from work is also not reliable because their employment is not reliable. Like Those kinds of injuries really mean that they just, people are, either won't be going to the hospital to get medical help, or if they do, they'll be in crazy amounts of debt. I think one prominent case was of a journalist had come across and she had gotten I rub a bullet in one of her eyes and she will have to have multiple surgeries to try and reconstruct her eye. And the first surgery, she got the bill and it was $58,000. And she was just like, I can't Mm. pay this. And they were like, okay, we'll just set you up on a payment plan for eventually they brought it down to $100 a uh, a month. She was like, yeah, it will just take me two decades to pay it off now.
0: Yeah, and I guess like the kind of the the stuff that's been like the, the response to this in terms of like you know Trump being like the law and order kind of response, but not even necessarily completely pulling through. I, I wonder how that's going to actually like affect the 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 upcoming election, mm-hmm. because like from what I've seen in terms of statistics, like the majority of the American population supports the protests and supports the cause but um, have felt differently about the violence generally, like whether it's the rioting or the looting or whatever else, right? And have like, you know, supported kind of intense measures. And obviously, you know, when the police get involved, they, they have tended to kind of aggravate the situation because they've sometimes pushed peaceful protests, right? And then that's when it's turned out to be violent. Like they've, in many cases, been the ones to instigate. But yeah, it makes you wonder kind of what the what the kind of response is going to be like and then what... How that's gonna shape the political landscape in the next little while in terms of where it's gonna push people, right? like is this gonna push people towards wanting a more kind of aggressive state intervention mm-hmm. and and having something possibly even worse than Trump in the coming years that's even that's willing to follow through, right? or you know is it gonna go in the direction that I think a lot of people wanted to go in uh, and i'm not I'm not too sure, which is kind of what concerns me about the defund the police call in in this context but we can go into that later i guess talk more about
1: that well in terms of trump yeah i think there was that concern right like i think when the initial sort of shock of the moment wore off and we've we saw what the scale of this was one of the questions that certainly came to mind was like okay how is this going to to affect trump's standing and i think certainly the liberal media in the u.s was worried that it was going to help Trump so you had people like Farid Zakaria and various other big heads in liberal media sort of being like oh no is this going to help and you know i it's not just them i was also wondering the same thing but you know what actually when the smoke cleared or it has it eventually sort of started to clear and and there was polling done around this what they found is that this has had you know a big effect on Trump's poll numbers. He's actually down significantly. Mm-hmm. I think by, right. you know, it, it, and, and Biden is up in comparison. Right, I think yeah. there, there's like an 8% gap between them. So ultimately, actually, it seems to be hurting Trump. One of the only things that that has hurt him. And so the law and order, you know, brouhaha hasn't been helping. or so far hasn't, uh, hasn't helped him.
2: Yeah, I think part of it is also that The extent of the protests, unlike the ones in 1992 and from the 60s, it's much more widespread, both in terms of the racial composition and in terms of geographically. Even really small towns of, like, you know, less than 20,000 people, predominantly white, predominantly, or considered to be Trump country, even they've had protests. And one of the articles I'd read said that it was the younger generation, like people under 30 who in 2016 had in fact supported Trump, but in the last couple of years have been moving in a more leftward direction. So I think it's yet to be seen between now and October or now and November when the election is, like what kind of momentum this is going to build. And even if there is, you know, poll numbers are against Trump, is that going to ultimately lead to a victory for Biden? Or I think people are still like largely... I don't know. I I don't have a very good sense of it because, you know, our social media is skewed. But I feel like people are still kind of skeptical of Biden and of the Democrats and how they're paying lip service and using all the right words now or donning like, you know, Afrocentric kind of fabrics. Um, So I think I love that. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Nancy Pelosi and Kente Clock.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's ridiculous. So, yeah, so I don't know if, the, if yeah. that's going to play out for the Democrats as they want it, or ultimately people will just be like, oh, no, that's a sham. So they're not going to come out to vote. So I don't know. I guess we'll see.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a good point. It's Because it's not like the cities where, um, like Minneapolis itself, right, has a Democrat in office. And a lot of these cities have had Democrats in office. So it's like, it doesn't maybe seem like that viable of an option too, to be like, let's just vote Democrat instead to fix this problem. Mm-hmm. But, um, I guess what concerns me because you're right, you're right. like I, I thought at first that it might bolster Trump, and then it did come back to saying like it, he's been less popular recently. And I don't know how how like justified this concern is or not because it's it's also based on like very particular things. but you know, you know how like that guy, what's his name? The guy who published in the an op-ed in The New York Times, and there was a huge kind of outcry about it. Cotton. is that his last name? Tom cotton. Yeah like saying that basically you should bring the military in, right? Um, obviously, I don't agree with that, but it's like there was a huge outcry about it and then they were like, you can't, even though it's an op-ed, you can't publish something like this. So I, I don't it just makes me wonder like how much of the narrative are we not getting if, if there's like you you're not allowed, you know unless it's something like on Fox News or something to publish what maybe a good a good chunk of people are thinking in this moment. Then, what is actually happening? It's hard to say, and i can't I can't say for sure that it's, yeah, that it is bolstering Trump or not. But that has been a kind of unfortunate thing that has been happening because it's like you want to be able to get an idea, right? of like where people's heads are at.
2: no, I think you're totally right. And, you know, for Trump's base, what their critique has often or they've they've enjoyed his anti-establishment rhetoric. And mm-hmm. I think, if the establishment right now is very eager to show itself as anti-racist and sort of go out of their way to have these gestures of, you know, kneeling, of using the same kind of rhetoric that a guilty white people use, I think that stuff is likely or I I could see it very easily being used to rile up people who are who don't agree with it and not only see it as a sham, but she see it as like as a sort of concession to these like radical demands, which basically will leave this American society orderless and insecure, etc. cetera. And so this same like over eagerness of the establishment, which I think is sort of shown in that New York Times trying to you know, self-flagellate for having put out the op-ed and similar kinds of you know, stories of people being fired and such for voicing, critiques of BLM, uh, Black Lives Matter. I think th- those things probably will and already are having reactions, but we're just not seeing them. And those reactions ultimately may end up having much more pronounced of an impact in the election than, you know, the the establishment side. Because for now, it's just trying to gain a foothold. It's trying to just, like, if not co opt then certainly sort of... Uh, lean into the current to the bandwagon
1: Mm -hmm. but you know on the stuff about trump's base and what they would think i mean i think this what this sort of does is it implodes the notion that was somewhat popular on on parts of the left that all the people who voted for trump are racists well because you know well i mean there were other things that one could have pointed to to suggest that actually, no, they're not just racist because actually plenty of these people voted for Obama uh, when he was running. But now you can point out that, well, there's plenty of people who voted for Trump who are also sympathetic to these protests, who are horrified by the killing of George Floyd and, you know, by uh, by the disproportionate killing of uh, black men in the U.S. So... I don't know that Trump can, you know, there's a segment of his base who would buy into this law and order, get the blacks in line stuff. Uh, though obviously, even Trump doesn't go as far to say things like get the blacks in line. Some of his supporters, I'm sure, do. But those people are a minority, right? Uh, I think the uh, vast majority of people in American society think of themselves as people who want to ha- live in an in- inclusive society and to the extent that trump plays to that uh, that part of his base the more that you know even those people who voted for him many of them will will feel alienated and and will want to go elsewhere
0: yeah like i think you're right and i think this has been sort of like a there's has been like just broad consensus that what happened was horrific and what continues to happen in terms of police brutality against black men disproportionately is horrific. Like, I think that's, it's it is a moment where we see this kind of consensus, but I think like I, and I don't, I don't know how to really, cause because we're not like, I mean, at least I'm, I'm not partaking in any of it. I'm, we're in Canada. Our context is different and all of that. It's hard to, to kind of separate what we see online and the kind of reactions we're seeing from, from what is actually going on, right? Like it's hard to sometimes separate those things and understand where the lines are drawn. But I- I'm I'm kind of concerned that the kind of the kind of politics that we seem to start to get away from, right? Just maybe 2015, 2016, at when Bernie started at, at gaining popularity is, like, back in a mutated and more vicious form and that it, it could have kind of longer-term effects. And I don't know if that's true or not. Like, I don't know if that's, like, specifically in our circles that are maybe becoming more and more irrelevant, right? I don't think, like, we can assign those kind of, like, like, identity politics and very, like, anti-kind of, like, universalism in that way. I think I've, I've seen a lot of things... Because, uh, like you were saying, the, the, the protests are super multiracial and it is this this moment of consensus where you can build this, like, kind of common goal with uh with everyone and it's a moment for that but again just I guess seeing what the establishment is doing like you were saying Sadia, like whether it's the democrats whether it's corporations or you know journalists and and like you know uh, big media outlets and how they're kind of responding to this that that seems pretty clear to me right like what's going on there and that concerns me not necessarily just for this election cycle but just generally uh, for like the, because we don't know, right? Like we're in this kind of like populist moment uh, broadly that goes, I think, beyond Trump and Bernie. It, it's it's a particular moment, right? And uh, I I wonder what it's going to 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 continue to look like moving forward. I think you're right. I think
2: there was there was something to you know Bernie's campaign building up, and we were cautiously celebrating the the victories, and with this like premature defeat of Bernie, even though it was a premature one, and even though it was a defeat, it did seem to change some of the parameters of the usual sort of debates in the pres- presidential sort of uh, context. And so it did seem like Biden was at least feeling some pressure to pay lip service to some of the si- similar kinds of policy platforms that Bernie had put out. And that was a good thing that uh, that he would feel pressured to do that i mean of course we can say that it was it's unlikely even if he had continued to tout those things that he would have followed through but that's beside the point and i think now with this round of social upheaval the democrats and biden seem to be back where they're very comfortable in the in the realm of you know saying the right things using the right language Mm-hmm. And having the sort of, okay, well, we're going to look into this. We're going to pass some of these policies that are, uh, in some cases, they are still sorely needed, but it's much more narrow and much more focused on uh, police brutality and accountability for the police. And so it it does seem like it takes us away and in a way that the establishment is, I would imagine, like pretty happy about. Um, that they can just, like, feel comfortable there. And for Biden, it's all about, like, you know, you see him and Obama, which is so such good buds, and uh, his racial creds are there. And so he doesn't have to do anything more than just repeat some of these messages.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Did you guys uh, see that piece by Cedric Johnson that I sent you guys?
0: I saw it. It was, uh, it was funny. Funny? What? What? <laughs> Are you confusing Cedric Johnson with Dave Chappelle?
2: <laughs> no, the Dave Chappelle clip was actually quite difficult to watch. Yeah, um, it was, yeah. But I think Cedric Johnson's, like, just uh, his so sort of characterization of how much Democrats are sort of falling on top of each other to try and prove their Afrocentric and, like, pro-black credentials. Found that to be funny.
1: Oh, I see. That's what you mean by funny. Yes. Uh <laughs> So the piece is uh, called The Triumph of Black Lives Matter and Neoliberal Redemption. Uh, it's on nonsite.org. And in it, Cedric Johnson kind of laments the fact that Black Lives Matter as a slogan is, uh, as he puts it, a militant expression of racial liberalism. And then he goes on to talk about how Jeff Bezos has pledged you know, $10 million in support for social justice organizations, you know, like the ACLU, the NAACP, et cetera. And various other sort of corporate giants have come out in support and really dug into their wallets to help support anti-racist efforts. And, you know, and he sees this as a, as a good way for these, you know, corporate elites to earn good PR you know, a focus on anti-racism in this sort of vacuous way, right? Anti-racism and like, oh, people shouldn't be racist. Police shouldn't be racist. It's kind of good timing because Amazon was under quite a bit of pressure to give its uh, workers decent wages, to give them decent working conditions and proper PPE. And now Jeff Bezos can front as a anti-racist hero
2: yeah I think Cedric Johnson and Adolf Reed, who you know make similar arguments, have often just been accused by the left as being class reductionists and trying to downplay the particular nature of these protests as well as you know other other instances of outrage over the killings of black people in the u s And I obviously agree with Cedric Johnson that that it seems like what we can predict will be the outcome from this series of, of protests is that a bigger chunk of the establishment will have adopted more refined rhetoric and fine-tuned their PRs and sort of taken on anti-racist cred the way that in previous situations there's been pro-LGBT sentiment. And so if we just... Take these protests as being just purely about race. Then, how far does that get us? And if BLM protesters and other, you know, others who are joining in are saying that, you know, don't try to reduce it to class. This is a, a racial issue. Then, if we take that at face value, where, where do we go from there?
0: Yeah, and, and there's there's limits, right, to to what you can do with that. At the end of the day, like minorities and, and like racialized minorities are are a minority in the, the vast scheme of things. And even in this kind of like very calculated, cold way, it's like you you need actually a, a real coalition of, of people, right? Standing in solidarity, in real solidarity with each other towards a common cause to be able to achieve like real systemic change. And, you know, it's odd because I was telling Omer that I was pretty nervous about recording an episode like this because everything we're saying right now, even by... Uh, <laughs> The standards of people that are more or less aligned, you know, politically with us, uh, they'd maybe find it uh, reductive or, uh, you know, that we're not we're not recognizing racism as its own force, that it exists uh, separately from things. And, and that's kind of I, I don't know, again, how much this is something like I, it comforts me to know that, for example, when I talk to people that are not in academia, who are not uh, usually in leftist spaces, this isn't such a controversial topic even if people maybe have questions or disagree it isn't considered this kind of like controversy right like how could you how dare you this is a racist thing that you're saying no one takes it that way right except in these particular circles and that gives me some sort of comfort because it makes me think okay like obviously there's there's hope to build towards uh, a kind of universalist politics that that is and yeah i i I wonder, I don't know yet, it feels like kind of early to see how much space there is for for that kind of thing to come out of. And I, I'm sure it's happening a lot on the ground and we don't see it, but to come out of these protests and to continue going on. Because we've seen kind of the last time around, what kind of happened is you had a bit like a BLM leadership, right, that came out of it. And it just kind of became this very kind of narrow project. It's too early to say if that's going to happen this time or not. And I think there is space for it to not go in that direction. But yeah, so far, i from what I've seen at least, I'm 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 pretty concerned, and it's like, you know, it's enough to say that I'm even concerned saying this stuff in like kind of a public, public way. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
2: I think uh, you're right. I think there's this like nervousness that we feel for taking this position that's marginal on the left, but I think one of the things that you know, as uh, Kaima, you were saying it, uh, the defunding of the police uh, slogan makes you kind of nervous. And I, I think it it also, like in so far as it's sort of um, radical posturing, I think it also makes me nervous. But insofar as it is actually gesturing to like the economics of policing and the economics of policing within cities that are otherwise desperate for, funds for social services. Right. I think that seems to be promising and and I can't remember if I've seen quite those sort of narratives come up in previous rounds of anti-police brutality protests that I've followed. And so that makes me a bit hopeful, but yeah, I think like there is some there's some recognition, I think some public sort of discourse around that if we defund the healthcare system, and we have no problem defunding education. We have no problem defunding you know, other kinds of social services. Why is defunding the police such a, a no-go kind of area?
0: I agree. I, you're right. I think I actually agree with the the that kind of demand, right, to defund the police. I think it for for such a, like it's a succinct demand, right, coming from the the set of circumstances that exists. It's like you can't really demand in a in a protest forum like the end of capitalism or something. You know that's a, it. It it makes sense in that, and I agree. But I guess like, given the con the current political context, I worry about any sort of and maybe this is naive of me, right? But I kind of worry of about of any kind of resource allocation <laughs> fuckery generally in in the state resource allocation because like. Like it's kind of like the argument with UBI, right? Like I I find it to be sometimes a little crude when some leftists are like, "No, UBI should not even be th- thought about because it's just going to mean austerity in some other way." Um, and it's like not necessarily true that that would happen. So in the same way, right? Like it's not like necessarily true that defunding the police would mean that rich people are going to start like buying private security, and you, you're going to maybe ha- that that's not necessarily true, and it's also not necessarily true that the funds wouldn't be reallocated in a way that's good for society like I don't know that it would or it wouldn't but I guess it's just because there isn't any kind of the left has no uh hold on any kind of like political institution I worry about what the implications of some of this stuff could be and that's not to say that I don't support it or I don't I don't even want to see it happen and see what would what would happen but I do have these like questions right and I, I haven't seen I have seen some people talk about and discuss like What it would mean and how what it could look like, but not sort of in a very concrete way, very in in usually just in very abstract ways and in theoretical possibilities. Like, well, this could happen or this could happen, but uh, and I guess maybe we won't be able to know until we just we see this happen and 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 look at what what the consequences are in the different cities that it's happening in.
1: Yeah, and speaking just for Toronto, I think that this is a wonderful slogan because the Toronto Police Department is really overbloated. it's you know it's got a budget of more than a billion dollars now and the major the vast majority of it goes to pay police officers who uh, you know frankly speaking are overpaid uh you have a ridiculous number of people in the toronto police department who are on the sunshine list yeah so i mean in the case of toronto we certainly need uh, a reduction in the size of the police department and, you know, as a leftist, this is weird for me to say, but really we have, like, a lot of that has to come from lowering the, the wages of some of these police officers. Yeah. Uh, but in other places, you know, in the U.S., there are, there are plenty of places where police don't get paid very much. You know, they're getting, like, some of these places, like $18 an hour, $20 an hour. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if in that context... I mean, you know, you can look more broadly about reform, like police, policing reform, and the kind of ridiculous kinds of weaponry that uh, some of these police departments have access to hand downs from the war on terror, basically. I mean, those kinds of things you just have to get rid of. But in, in some of these yeah. places, you have to—you probably have to start paying police officers better, uh, give them access to better mental health services, etc. Because you know. I'm sure some of these police officers are, you know, they're probably dealing with lots of issues. Like the guy who, who murdered George Floyd, I he's definitely not right in the head. So, yeah, in that sense, I mean, I think you have to be, uh, yeah, obviously a local context will determine what happens mm. or what should happen.
2: I mean, I think partly people would agree that Maybe again, this is part of my skewed view that I think, but I thought there there was a consensus that there are social reasons for why insofar as crime exists and the existence of crime justifies policing, that crime is a socially produced phenomena. And so, you know, having schools and having community centers and having you know, access to services and proper housing, proper health care and mental health care funded, that those things would reduce crime as such. But I think within the communities themselves, um, in Toronto, when mayor know, and I have organized with different uh, racialized communities, there's the sentiment among people has been that they feel that crime is an issue in their communities. And, and they're often will say that, you know, police is necessary because, you know, their streets don't feel safe or they feel like, you know, the young men hanging around uh, loitering make them feel um, bit insecure walking around. And so, you know, I think we do have to acknowledge that like, within these racialized working class communities, they they have their own anxieties about crime and insecurities in their community. And... There we can
0: build up the support for alternatives to policing. I'm just remembering like a conversation I have with my coworkers because um, like gang activity in Brampton has gone up uh, a lot in recent years. And it's been like really scary for like uh, a lot of people. I know like a lot of my coworkers who have kids have been just saying like they're worried about their kid wearing the wrong color T-shirt and stuff. And I'm like, oh, wow, in Brampton, like because yeah. <laughs> of, you know, they're worried. They'd be uh, associated with this gang or that or the other, and it's like you know, like the the, the overall consensus is just like yeah. Well, the economy shit. It's not. It's no surprise that the you know gang activity and whatnot is on the rise. So I think there is an acknowledgement that obviously, like you know, if it had thing if, if things are better, you know, people. It's like people make the connection that yes, like crime would go down. But like you were saying, Sadia, like uh, one of my coworkers was talking about how someone was getting beat up at a convenience store this was actually like in Mississauga. So in the Peel region generally, uh, this is for anyone who doesn't know, suburbs of Toronto um, that are more racialized and definitely, yeah, like lots of these areas are quite poor. Um, they, you know, they, she called the cops to to try to like intervene because this person was like, this woman was getting beat up, right? Um, and they just never came. So I think like, yeah, to to just kind of throw something like abolish or defund the police, at someone like that who will be like, well, fuck no, we, we should probably fund the police more. That That's probably the connection people will have, right? And not to say that that's something we should do, but um, there there needs to be space for a kind of a comprehensive conversation about this to be had regardless, right?
2: Absolutely. And I think this is partly where like leftists try to paint an overly crude photo- uh, picture that there are on the one hand, like police unions and establishment politicians who are who are all about law and order. And on the other hand, there are racialized communities who are anti-police and want the police to be out of their neighborhoods and feel oppressed by the police. And that's often not the case on the ground. And, you know, it it's for a complex series of factors. I mean part of it is that for a lot of those communities there isn't there's never been a discussion Of any meaningful kind, of like what, how could that community feel safer in other ways besides just injecting more police? But often in the short term, what's what it's meant is that there is, you know, quote unquote, community policing patrols, and you know, with police in different Toronto neighborhoods and going around on their bikes and trying to make nice with the kids and trying to, you know, create connections and whatever. And you know, as leftists, we'll be like, you know, this is such a transparent attempt to, to sort of cozy up to the community that you're going to ultimately let down. But I think for, for a lot of residents in those communities, they there is this feeling that our community is unsafe and our kids and our families are unsafe. And if the police is there, there is some relative semblance of safety. Yeah,
1: yeah. and I, I was telling you guys this story, right, of... Um so back when I used to live in Jane and Finch, which is a community in the north of Toronto, largely made up of uh, immigrants and non-white, low-income people. And uh, there was like a panel discussion put on by a anti-policing group. Some of the people in that group were my friends. And, you know, and like people gave uh, presentations about how they need to, we need to get the police out of the community, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And, you know, uh, after the panel and uh, there was like the question and answer period and like this uh, elderly black woman got up and was like, what are you talking about? We need to get the police out of the community. We need more police. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and the response to her wasn't to really engage with what we sh- what she was saying, but it, it was just sort of this, you know, as activists, we've kind kind of just lean, lean back on certain kinds of rhetoric like oh you can't buy into what the police are trying to tell you it's all about just criminalizing brown and black people and therefore they should be out of here and like look it, that doesn't work it's, working people don't you know regular people doesn't matter what their race is don't buy into that and partly it's because this framing of police as a as a mechanism to simply, simply as a mechanism to control uh, racialized populations, it's simply not true, right? First of all, those populations are not all the same, right? Like everybody who's racialized isn't the same. Even uh, everybody who's black is not the same. And also, I mean, if you look at the stats, you know, the stats also don't bear, uh, bear this line of argument out about how police are just, coming after racialized people, because in the U.S., about half of the people who are killed by police every year are white. So while it's true that black men in particular are disproportionately more likely to be murdered by police, so they're, based on the amount of the population that they make up, they are twice as likely to be killed. But more often than not, if there is a police killing in the U.S., it's a white person who's killed, and and there's a you know I think I also sent you guys a piece by by Adolf Reed on this. Uh, it's titled "How Racial Disparity Does Not Help Make Sense of Patterns of Police Violence." It's also on nonsite dot
2: I mean, I think you know people really, I've I've seen leftists really love to hate on that Reed piece and really love to hate on. On those sort of stats in particular about white people in absolute numbers being more likely to be killed by police, and on the one hand, I, I understand why people hate hearing those things and see and seeing that being pointed pointed out because they feel like it takes away from the kind of the kind of like horrible, more high profile kind of instances that we've been exposed to of police brutality and police killings because it seems to say that, you know, those are not representative, uh, you know, in absolute numbers of police killings. Well, on the other hand, I I feel like, you know, I'm not sure why it's taken so badly because even, you know, back in the time of the Black Panthers, there was an acknowledgement that, for example, Appalachian white communities were routinely targeted by the police and that there were attempts by some Panthers to go and and join a coalition with them against police brutality. So for Reed and for Cedric Johnson and for other others to be so dismissed as cost reductionists when we try to bring up more universalist sort of readings of the situation... I think it also conveniently leaves out figures that are otherwise revered in in the Black tradition, like MLK, like Malcolm X, like the Panthers, who, at the very least, at, towards the end of their lives, they came to a point of pushing for uh, cross-race, working, working-class coalitions that aimed to see that there was uh, a common struggle against poverty and deprivation and inequality, that... Would elevate their the struggle of, you know, the vast majority of Black people in the states as well.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I, I also feel like I would get in trouble to for saying this, but like, it's really hard not to feel like, like Adolphe says that, that that it is actually a kind of class politics, The like identity politics is a kind of class politics, but just not the class that we're rooting for. I mean, I know that he also gets really ripped on for saying that. But it's it's for people to get so kind of to feel like that statement in of itself is so controversial, it feels really hard. And I, I think we've had this conversation before, just to be very honest here, that we are a part of those circles, right? Like and so it feels I think particularly kind of anxiety inducing to be having an open conversation because it it feels like we're almost uh, we're coming for people in our own kind of circles or like we're we're this, it's in conversation with people in our own circles you know no one's disagreeing of course that these things that we're discussing we're we're discussing them because obviously we think uh you know the effects of racism can be deadly and can be really uh horrific and horrible and you know no one is saying otherwise and, and i think like for those things too for example to, to focus on yeah like attitudes and stuff like that for that to be genuine for that to actually result in like to genuinely be able to address those things it can't just be like a rhetorical thing like it can't just be that we need to like have trainings of how not to be racist like that's um that's clearly not really worked and it's it isn't like a genuine effort at (laughs) at trying to make people feel like they're they have more in common but if we are trying to think about kind of our next steps forward or how we want to orient our politics and stuff like there should be the openness to to really try to get to to the root of the issue and, and 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 find solutions that are actually going to push us in a in a good direction moving forward
1: can i ask you guys a question mm-hmm. do mm-hmm. you remember the first anti-racism workshop you attended and and as a follow up to that what did you think of it how did you feel about it how do you feel about it looking back
0: <laughs> i mean I remember the first kind of like, it was, it wasn't an anti-racism workshop. It was like a a gender slash sexual orientation kind of anti-oppression workshop. And I, uh, I I mean, I don't know. It felt like people were not uh, really engaging with it. It wasn't just with like a bunch of students, which typically it is. It was also with uh, the security guards at our university. So it was more, you know, it was a more kind of diverse audience than just kind of students doing their undergrads.
1: Just to clarify, you this is when you worked as a as part of campus security, uh, part time yes. while you were a student. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, I remember learning things I never knew as someone who's a part of the LGBT community for like quite a while. <laughs> I was like, "What? This is strange." Uh, so it felt like kind of uh, weirdly. I don't even want to say comprehensive. It introduced all these things that I thought I never even knew about, hadn't been a part of the community for a while. Uh, and that was like a, a bit strange to me. And yeah, it felt like the people that were there were mostly like very like disengaged. Yeah, I
2: think the disengagement and ridicule is uh, are the two sort of terms that come to mind with my experience as well. I think my experience was in the, in the context also of a, work, a workplace it was an anti-oppression workshop Um, or a series of them. And this was at a workplace which was uh, a settlement office. Uh, So it's supposed to help um, newcomers to the country get adjusted to life in Canada. And almost all of the workers in this workplace were immigrants themselves, like fairly recent, you know, within the last like 10, 15, 20 years. Um, And they were largely women. And I was one of the people who had... Probably one of the only people who had been exposed to some of this stuff before in in being an uh, undergraduate student at that time. But it was just... The whole thing seemed like such a hollow exercise. And I think this is... Probably anyone who's sat through one of those workshops in any concrete scenario will probably say that it's a hollow exercise. And so whenever we... Whenever anyone says that, yeah, anti-bias training or subconscious racism training or, you know, even like sensitivity training of any kind is a legitimate solution to anything. It's just a laughable proposal.
1: Yeah, and I I think your experience isn't necessarily different from mine. Just thinking back, you know, like, I think the first time it happened, like, you know, my feelings were like, what, am I being inducted into a cult? (laughs) And... You know, like, I'm a brown person who certainly identifies as being brown, who knows a fair bit of the history of race, racialization, about, you know, identity, identity formation, and have, you know, I, as someone who immigrated here as a kid, have had to go through personal kinds of um, struggles, one could say. I don't know if one could. Anyway, the point is, I've dealt with this stuff personally and you know when you attend one of those things yeah like it you know i think hollowness is is the right way to put it and it's just the difficulty with it that i found was that you can't even say anything and as soon as you do and this is my problem is that i have the i have to say something as soon as you you know ask a question that seems to deviate a little bit you just you know you're you're in the wrong wrong place so i think what i learned to do is to kind of be respectfully distant you know like my position on this stuff it became this like okay this is what these this person's political sort of approach is and technically we're all on we're on the same side here but around this stuff i can't and like you know we'll get into disagreements and it's perfectly normal obviously that's part of like developing oneself as a political person, as thinking through problems. But there are certain things you just don't go close to. And yeah, and that's kind of how how it's been. And I it just it's kind of sad.
0: No, I it is it is sad. And I've gone through this thing in my head where I'm like, Well, look, like regardless, there's no reason to have this like animosity, right? We're broadly on the same side here. And it feels like that until it doesn't. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe that's not useful. I mean, I still think that's like that's the approach I tend to take. It's like there's no reason to kind of especially when, you know, it depends on the stakes I find nowadays more than anything else. Like if it's worth having that discussion, let's have it. If 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 something's at stake that is good like that is like worth it and worth getting into this kind of strange fight, then it's worth it. But oftentimes it isn't, right? Oftentimes this whole thing is discursive. And, you know, so, I mean, sometimes, of course, it is a matter of, uh, like, principle. And it is a matter of, like, oh, a lot of times defending your friends. You're not going to let them just kind of, like, get shat on. Because uh, that happens a lot. So so sometimes, of course, it is more than just, like, that the stakes are, are... Whether they're worth it or not. But, like, I think oftentimes that's how I've started to think about it. Like, until there are stakes that are worth having this fight and worth the emotional effort, and worth the kind of, uh, the things you get called, and, and the the denunciations, Is that, like, there's just no point in engaging with it, even though we, I mean, it's, you know, we kind of are engaging with it right now, we're talking about it, but it's not worth, I guess, going beyond this, and that's, I was telling Omer before this, that, you know, listening to, there's a lot of, there's a risk, like, a, a, an upsurge of, like, anti-woke leftists, right, uh, like, that are, that are doing podcasts and stuff like that, and then you have the, the the typical stuff and i've been frustrated listening to both of the both of the the arguments on this issue for example like nothing has felt very this <laughs> but they're both been frustrating because they're both kind of they're both moralizing right like on one one is moralizing against these people and the other ones are moralizing against the other people and it's it there's it's it feels like it lacks anything more than that than just kind of a you know these people are of a particular class, like, that's what a lot of the anti-woke leftists will say, this is just bourgeois politics, like, okay, sure. But that that's the extent of it. And I, I don't know, I don't know if you guys feel the same way, and I know this is kind of going off uh, off the, the topic that you started here, Omer, but, like, I tend to feel like anything disconnected from also kind of any real, like, project, like, when it's, you're just kind of in the discursive, you know, realm for a long time, it tends to get because we can keep having this conversation forever and i think i I think until people are you know a lot of us that are having these conversations are like you know connected to something or the other concrete it's it yeah it it does become kind of just cyclical and a little annoying
1: yeah and that's not just in the realm of like woke versus anti-woke arguments it's also like and Sadia will often complain about this. You know, when we have within the within the left, we will have arguments about anything, and it's just the the basis for it is not what the project is, or that there is even a concrete project that this is attached to. It's just about coming up with the best position in yeah. the abstract, and that's all it seems to be. It's like all we have is is this abstract sort of. Field where we're just kind of coming up with, uh, with the best positions. But to bring it back to policing, <laughs> I guess my, my, the, the reason I asked about that question about anti-racism is because, yeah, I wanted to just highlight that as as some of these things sort of wind down, there is gonna be a push to sort of do anti-racism trainings. And I feel like we should be not so gung-ho necessarily because that stuff is weird, and that's not how racism needs to be combated. And I was wondering if can I share something with you guys that I that I got from Bernie Sanders's book. Mm-hmm. Um, so, actually, a couple things from his book. So, just to complicate this issue about uh, policing a little bit. So the first election that bernie sanders won and this is from his uh his book outsider in the white house and, and you know this is a uh, autobiographical book about his history as a politician and he so he ran for mayor of burlington vermont in 1981 and he was you know like an independent candidate he was challenging the incumbent it was going to be like a long shot and he won, he eventually did win that election by 10 votes. Do you know which union, of, one of the more prominent unions in the city who uh, who ended up supporting him for that run? Does anybody want to guess? Sorry? <laughs>
0: it's the police union?
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm sure that wasn't hard to guess given the long wind up. <laughs> uh But yeah, so the Burlington Patrolmen's Association uh, endorsed his bid for the mayorship. And that was because, as he says, I promised to listen to the concerns of the cops on the beat and open serious labor negotiations with their union. And following his victory, he did open labor negotiations with them because they'd been getting, you know, just beaten around by the incumbent administration and not getting decent uh wages and so bernie sanders actually expanded the size of the police budget and gave them living wages so there's that i guess something to think about uh and they you know and that the cops became an important part of the the coalitions that kept uh him in power because he he remained in power as the mayor of the city through the 80s okay so the other thing that i wanted to share Where's some comments that he makes about uh, what we're talking about here, about racism. So he says, racism and other oppressions. Um, He says, quote, we have to get rid of any vestige of racism, sexism, and homophobia in this country. I am convinced that providing decent jobs for all and a better education for the young will be the linchpins of that effort. Too often... Liberals believe that being against prejudice is all that is required to bring about a more just and equitable world. Not true. Only when every man and woman has a place in American society, and this means, I believe, a decent paying job, only then will we begin to eradicate the hatreds that are based on jealousy and insecurity and only when every American is economically secure enough to stand up to insults of any sort will all Americans be free of the power of prejudice to define them
0: beautiful yeah that's very powerful
2: yeah and I think he does get at what you were saying Karma about uh, you know it's not clear what these leftists are for And it seems like it's unclear whether they're for anything. They're just against racism, against prejudice.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's a very good way to put it, I think. They're just anti-something, but there's there's nothing specific that they're necessarily for.
2: Yeah, and, and I think there is, you know, putting it forward like Bernie does here. I mean, I can imagine some leftists that we know will just know be dismissive of it still and say that mm-hmm. this is too simplistic uh a rendering and it uh, ignores the complex history and the, the systemic nature of all these oppressions but man like you know what what do we have like you know to to fight for like what are we putting forward someone's putting it forward in a concrete way
0: like that's good yeah i i'll maybe just say one more thing
1: Help us close here.
0: Okay. I don't know if this will be a very good closing statement, but yeah, I mean, I just, uh, you know, I'm uh, originally Palestinian, but like I grew up in Jordan. And when I came here, I was thinking of getting involved. Obviously, like ever since my youth, I've been the whole kind of like the, obviously the the Palestinian cause has been very all around me. And I was thinking of of potentially being a part of it um, in the international context and I was really uh, just, <laughs> I didn't want to because it, it, felt, it felt like the, uh, the kind of this cause of, you know, yeah, representation and whatnot didn't seem to get to the, the, the core of, of the Palestinian, you know, the Palestinian suffering is, is very clearly, in my mind, attached to class. Like the Arab elite and the Israeli elite can go both fuck themselves. And it's, <laughs> I've just, that was a, a very big moment for me in like kind of deciding to to not be a part of it in, in obvious ways that I thought I would have been maybe as a kid or something. I mean, that's and that's, of course, this is a very close to my heart issue and yet I, I, I hold the same stance, right? Yeah, I, I, I don't know if that's a very good closing stance or if I was uh, very succinct, but I, I just wanted to say that because that was very formative. And how I think about these things.
2: No, I think that that was good because I think we do end up making, even as leftists, even as ones who are you know, committed to the broader cause of wanting a more just world. In concrete terms, we end up having to navigate through, like you know, the the particular ways that these activism[s] manifest, and unfortunately, a lot of how they manifest is in these ways that are like more suffocating than, than life-giving and, and sort of dull our imaginations and our, and our motivations rather than you know, sharpening them in a way that would actually be of some use to the promotion of a more just society.
1: Thanks for tuning in to Oats for Breakfast.
2: Remember, you can support us by going to patreon.com forward slash Oats for Breakfast and becoming a patron. I'll see you again soon. Bye. Bye.